We will be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 57 to 59. Luke 12, 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Please be seated. Well, good morning. We conclude our series in Luke chapter 12 this morning. And we come to these hard words by Jesus himself. And so before we get going, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear your word from your son Jesus this morning. And let them land on us with appropriate severity. Help us to lift our eyes away from ourselves and to behold the beauty and splendor of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Sometimes hard and difficult words are needed for a particular situation. Hard and difficult words. Like a wife that might say to her husband, we need to see counseling. I can't take this anymore. Or perhaps a doctor that says, we need to operate immediately. Or if you do not change your habits and lifestyles, you will not live to see grandchildren. Or perhaps a firefighter that comes to your door and says, leave your things. You need to evacuate your home immediately. Hard words are sometimes necessary for the situation, because too much hangs in the balance. And that's what we come to at the end of Luke chapter 12. We get these hard and sober words from Jesus himself. Last week, Pastor Augustine guided us through what is more or less the first half of some of these words. The crowds are coming to Jesus, and he says, hypocrites, You can interpret the weather, but you can't interpret what's actually taking place. You see the temporal things, but you don't see the eternal realities that are before you. You're hypocrites. And now, Jesus comes and says very similarly. He rebukes the crowds, not just for their short-sightedness, which Pastor Augustine drew out last week. It was their fatal flaw. They were consumed with the temporal, but not the eternal. But what Jesus does in our passage is this. He rebukes them for misjudging what's truly at stake. They see Jesus in their myths, and they don't see him as he truly is. They look at the God-man sent from the Father, and they think he's a street performer. Do another sign, Jesus. And they don't see him in all of his glory and majesty and splendor. So, if you'll look with me at our passage, we're going to look at verses 57 to 59. And this is a warning and a rebuke. Stern and sober words. And what I want to do is spend the first half of this sermon more or less helping us to understand what is Jesus' main point here? What is he getting at? 
What is he talking about? And then I want to spend the second half applying it into our lives. What are the implications of that? So what does it say, and then what do we do with that? So look with me at verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Jesus is looking at the crowds who have seen his signs, heard his very words, and they don't see him as he truly is. Why don't you judge and see what's really right before you? The kingdom of God is here because I'm here, says Jesus, and yet you don't recognize me. You don't see me. Jesus rebukes the crowd for failing to recognize the imminence of God's kingdom come in the person of Jesus himself. These are the things the angels themselves longed to look into. The prophets for hundreds of years were searching out this reality. And yet the crowds, this present blind generation, does not see the glory of Jesus on display. It's like a family who's maybe took a summer vacation through Zion National Park or took a hike through Yosemite or maybe some clear blue body of water in Michigan. And they behold the splendor and the glory and the majesty of all that God's created. And where are their faces? Buried in their phone, looking at Twitter or Instagram or whatever else. They don't see the greatness that's before them. You know what that's like. You've seen your children and grandchildren do that, right? One of the most stunning examples of this is actually in Luke 11. If you'll turn back with me, we just need to see it together. Luke 11, verses 14 to 16. And what was happening here was that Jesus had just cast out a demon in a man who was making him mute. The man couldn't speak because he was demon-possessed. And so demon casts out this demon. And what do some of the people do? Well, it says some people marveled, but some of them thinks he's doing it by demonic power. But others say this, and this is what's most striking. They wanted to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So here we have Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, had just cast out a demon out of a man, and the man stands before them, living and breathing and speaking for the first time. And what do they say? Well, do another one. Do another trick. I bet you can't do it twice. Show us another one, Jesus. They wanted to test him. The glory of God is on display, and all they can do is say, well, I don't know. Maybe do it again. The skeptics don't see the glory of the Messiah that stands right before them. And yet the crowds are not so unlike us, are they? In this book are contained the glories of the gospel, and of the good news of Jesus. And some of us haven't picked it up since last week, and we hardly ever read it. Or perhaps we gather together week after week to sing some of the most glorious words about our Savior and about who God is for us. And we get to gather together across generations and ethnicities and worship God. And some of you, your mind is a mile, a thousand miles away. You're thinking about what sandwich to get at Shane's when you leave here. We cannot be so concerned about the peripheral things when we have a chance to encounter the living God. The Washington Post did an experiment a number of years ago. 
they had a world-class violinist play six Bach pieces in the D.C. metro area for 45 minutes during rush hour. And about a thousand people passed this man by. But not just any violinist. This was Joshua Bell, one of the best musicians in the world. This is Dave Bullock on steroids, wherever he is. (laughs) He was playing his 300-year-old Stradivarius violin, the Gibson X Huberman. You know you're a big deal when your violin itself has its own name. And it was worth about $3.5 million dollars. And he's hanging out in the D.C. metro, playing for 45 minutes. And about 1,000 people passed him by. And how many stopped to listen? Six. Six people. And he got about $32 and change. (laughs) His concerts sell for regularly upwards of $100. He played some of the most difficult and intricate pieces that have ever been written for a violinist. Here was a virtuoso hidden in plain sight, and the crowds did not have the eyes or the ears to hear the greatness and the glory that was on display. And so it is with Jesus and the crowds. The Messiah, the Lord of heaven and earth, with all of his signs on display, and the crowds throw him a few pennies. They don't see it. They don't see it. Back in Luke 9, verses 7 to 9, we actually get a glimpse of the impact that Jesus was making. Herod the Tetrarch heard what Jesus was doing, and he was perplexed, the scriptures say. And some supposed that this was John the Baptist come back from the dead. Others said it was Elijah come back from the dead. And others said it must have been a prophet from of old. Now think about this for a moment. If your best explanation about someone who's doing amazing things, the stories coming out about this man are so incredible that your most plausible explanation is that it must be one of three people come back from the dead, you better listen to this person. This is not a normal man. And yet the crowds miss it. They don't judge for them, judge for themselves what is right. Now look with me at verses 50, verse 58. Jesus gives us a little mini parable here. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. So now Jesus gives us this illustration, this little mini parable. And the point isn't mainly about horizontal reconciliation. In the context of what's come before and what comes after, it's mainly about vertical reconciliation. And what Jesus is saying is that if you're on the way to the court with your accuser, you need to settle because you're guilty. That's common sense. Everyone knows this. If you're on your way and you're guilty, you settle before the punishment becomes too severe and permanent. It's just common sense. Kids know this. I'm going to tell mom. What is that? That's this principle at work in your family and in your children and grandchildren. I'm going to tell mom, unless you make it right, unless you give it back to me, unless you bribe me with your stuff, unless you do whatever you need to do to make this right, I'm going to tell mom. And once I tell mom, you're going to get in trouble. And you don't want that. And so you settle. You give it back or you make it right. The simplicity and obviousness of this illustration is intentional. It's not rocket science. Everyone knows to reconcile before it's too late. 
You reconcile if you're on the way with the accuser before the judge. You don't want to get in trouble because the punishment in God's heavenly courtroom will be severe and it will be permanent. And so, before God, all of us are sinners before a holy and just God. Every single person here this morning, you are guilty before a holy God. That's what Jesus is saying in this parable. Every thought, every deed, every word spoken is laced with our guilty hearts before God. Now look with me at verse 59. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus concludes with a very sober warning that the punishment for failing to reconcile will be severe. The word penny here is the word for the smallest copper Jewish coin. And it was so worthless that it actually took two of them to make the smallest Roman coin. It's like a half penny. And the point of it is not that you're actually going to be able to pay it to get out. The point is you're never going to be able to pay it. And why don't you reconcile before it's too late? Because the proceedings will squeeze out every last penny, every last half cent from you, and you will not be able to pay that debt. So the main point of our passage is this, this morning. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. There is an urgency. You don't know how long you will live. You don't know if you're going to walk out across that street and someone won't see you. You don't know if this is the last time you will ever hear this message. Be reconciled to God. You cannot follow half-heartedly. You cannot hold back your checkbook or your calendar. You cannot have a fallback plan. You cannot hedge your bets, as we've seen throughout Luke 12. Jesus only takes those who follow him wholeheartedly, who confess him before men. This is like a cancer diagnosis. When your doctor says, surgery is tomorrow, and then we need to get you on a radiation and chemo plan immediately. A delay will be fatal. So that's the first half. That's what Jesus is getting at. Be reconciled to God. The day of salvation is today. It's urgent. And I know in a church this size, there are many who have not made decisions to follow Jesus. Now what do we do with it? For those this morning who do not know whether they have been reconciled to God, the first step is to recognize That you are a sinner. You're guilty. That's the plight of all of us before a holy and perfect God. The wages of your sin is death. This is perhaps the most difficult reality to see. To see yourself rightly in the light of the perfection of Christ. But even just think about it for a moment. You don't even live up to your own standards for how you want to live. You wish you woke up at 5 or 4 and you wake up at 5.30 because you're tired. You don't live up to your own standards of how you would like to treat your wife or your children or at your workplace. How much more do you fall short of God's perfect standard? We are guilty. We do not live up to God's perfect standard. 
And so we need to be reconciled. We don't argue about the wallpaper when the house is burning down. The time of reconciliation is today. It's today. Like the commuters that missed Joshua Bell, will you hear God playing the symphony of his gospel message for you? And will you sit and stop in the midst of the rush hour and listen and delight yourself in the beautiful music being played before you? Or you, will you rush on? Will you throw him a few pennies? And very simply, the gospel is this. That God is the creator of heaven and of earth. He made all things and he made every single man and woman in this room. And he made you and I for his glory so that we would reflect him and honor him. And yet through man, sin entered into the world. And every man has fallen short of God's perfect standard. We don't live up to even our own standards, much less God's perfect standard. And so... God, in his holiness and in his perfection, must judge, and he must judge severely for our sin. And yet, in his kindness and his mercy, he actually sends a substitute in our place. He sent Jesus, who would live a perfect life, die a death for us, taking the wrath of God, taking the punishment we rightly earned, and delivered us so that we could have the free offer of eternal life. And the only thing that is required is that you trust him, that you believe and repent. Chapter 13 gets to that. Believe and repent, or you reject him to your own peril. So that's the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Life and death hangs in the balance. And I'm pleading with you, if you do not know Christ this morning, someone next to you would love to talk with you. One of the pastors would love to talk to you. Don't delay. And yet, there's a second category of people. There are the Pharisees who were among the crowds who thought they were rightly reconciled. We know what we need to do, apparently, they thought. And yet, in the next chapter of Luke, chapter 13, Luke says this, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Some are going to do this. Some will knock from the outside and say, Lord, open to us. And Jesus will answer, I do not know where you come from. I do not know where you come from. This is the danger of self-deception. And my guess is there are some here in our gathering who are self-deceived. You say, I'm a Christian. I've come to this church for a long, long time. Or some other church. Or I give to the church. Or I've been baptized. Or I come from a good family. I'm a good person. I serve at the soup kitchen. Check my credentials. And if that's your only hope, one of the things I listed, then you are self-deceived. There will be no church attendance awards given out in heaven. God will say to you, I don't know you. When I was a boy, I was in fourth grade. I grew up in a pastor's home. And I went to another church one day. And the counselor pulled me aside as he did with all the young boys and said, so do you have a relationship with Jesus? And I said, oh yeah, my dad's a pastor. You know, isn't it obvious? Duh. And this counselor was wise. And so he said, so you've confessed your sins to God and repented and surrendered your life to Jesus. And in that moment, I had the deer in the headlights look and the light bulb came on. 
I was looking to something much other than what mattered. I was looking to something other than a personal relationship with Jesus. I had not done that. And some of us are there this morning. What I just said in recounting the gospel sounds unfamiliar. And I pray that the light bulb would come on for you this morning. Do not be self-deceived. You must be reconciled to God. Now, if we trust in Jesus as our treasure, who does Jesus become for us? And I actually think this is one of the astounding things. You know, there isn't a detailed allegorical breakdown in this passage of who's the magistrate, who's the officer, who's the accuser. It's just trying to get the point across. There isn't a detailed allegorical breakdown. And yet, when we put our hope and trust in Jesus, Jesus becomes our rescuer. Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so for all of your debts that you hold, spiritual debts that you hold against God, Jesus stamps paid in full across it. Principle. Interest, penalty payments, Jesus wipes it out by nailing it to the cross by his very own death. And then Jesus becomes the chief witness for us that we looked at already in Luke chapter 12, verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. So on that judgment day, Jesus will not only have wiped away our debt, but he will be the chief witness for us and say, that's my child. He's confessed me. I'll claim him. And not only that, Jesus will be the just and only true judge on judgment day. Acts 10.42 says, Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now, what about those of us who are trusting in Jesus? Who delight to hear that Christ is for us, that he's going to be our rescuer. He's going to stand for us. He's going to be the judge. And on that day, we will gladly see him. Well, I want to apply it for us as a church in one particular way. This passage really gets at an urgency. There's an urgency. You are on the way before the judge. And all of our neighbors, all of our friends, all of our coworkers are on the way with their accuser before the judge. And the punishment will be severe and permanent. And so do we, College Church, live with evangelistic urgency? Do you live with evangelistic urgency? My guess is that we would agree, yes, the kingdom of God is coming and is here and is imminent. And yet, do we live with this urgency? Does it translate into how we live? Let me ask a question. Do you pray earnestly for the lost around you? Think back this week. Do you pray for the lost around you? The Evangelism Committee, a few months ago, took a survey of the congregation. About 400 of you you filled that out. And we discovered that about 30% of us do not pray for the lost on a regular basis. 30%. Now, if we truly believe the saving power of the gospel, the eternal damnation that faces the lost, and the eternal delight and joy that we can have in Christ, 
then shouldn't we be praying at the very least for the lost who are around us? Is there an urgency in how you live? This is more important than your lunch plans or your back-to-school to-do list or your next golf game. And yet most of us spend more time thinking of those realities than of the peril of the lost around us. Do you go out of your way to talk with people on the plane or in the grocery store or neighbors who are out weeding or who will soon be raking their leaves? We need to be intentional with building relationships with the lost around us. It's not okay to cocoon ourselves in a bubble. And for those older saints among us, those who are in their 70s or 80s or 90s, I want to say this as a son or as a grandson to you. I'm pleading with you. Don't waste the remaining years you have complaining or being anxious or lamenting the challenges that you will face, and you will face many. But there are hundreds and thousands of people who don't know Christ, who need your loving, winsome witness. And there's a whole generation, multiple generations that come after you that need to see you finish well, that need to see that grandma and grandpa still love Jesus and seek to make him known. We need you. God's not done with you. My grandmother died when I was in elementary school, and she died of lung cancer, and she lived a life void and absent of Jesus. And she died two weeks, uh, and two weeks prior to her death, she accepted Jesus. And I praise God for that on her deathbed. But she never had a chance to share Christ with anybody. And yet for us, who have been Christians, all of us, who have been Christians for six months or a decade or eight decades, how much more should we proclaim and share the good news of the gospel? Let the legacy you leave behind be that of souls who are rescued out of darkness into God's marvelous light. There is no greater privilege than to be a part of God's glorious saving work. And I know there are many, and I know many, because I get to hear the stories, who are doing this with great sacrifice, with great intentionality. And my only encouragement is keep going. It is urgent. Press on. Don't grow weary in doing good. I think in many ways this is a pivotal season for us as a church. We can either be very content with the status quo, coming in and out week after week with good services, hanging out with some good people, with no concern for the lost around us. Or we can, by God's enabling grace, overcome with joy and delight that we have in God and all that he is for us and empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit that will give you the words when you need them. And we can make much of Christ here in DuPage County and in Wheaton, declaring the God who loves the lost so much that he sent his only son to die for them. 
2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so that's what God wants to do. He wants to make his appeal in and through each and every single one of us, whether we're 5 or 95, to the lost. God wants you to be an ambassador for him. Will you go forth and declare the good news of Jesus Christ with great urgency? That's why we're still here, isn't it? So as we conclude, the kingdom of God is already and not yet. It has been inaugurated at the coming of the person of Jesus, and it will be consummated someday at his second coming. And in this between time, Jesus gives us these strong words. Be reconciled. If you're not reconciled, Take advantage of that opportunity today. And for the rest of us, we ought to live with a greater urgency to reach the lost around us. Luke 10.2 says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. There is a great and glorious harvest. All you have to do is pray for God to send you and go out and pluck the fruit off the vine. It's ripe. If you just shake the tree, some will just fall by itself. It's that simple. And there is no better and more satisfying endeavor than getting to testify to the glory of Jesus Christ. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, make us a people that loves you, that treasures you above all else so that we would indeed go forth and proclaim it. And for those here in this room, even this morning, who do not know you, who are unsure, who are unsure if they've lived a life like a Pharisee, being self-deceived. We pray, Father, by the power of your Spirit, and even in the moments to come, that you would let the light bulb turn on, and that they would stop and listen to the symphony that you play for them, and they would find their ultimate joy and delight in Christ, treasuring you above all else. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.